Hi, everyone. I'm Dave Sattler, one of the pastors here at North Shore Alliance Church, continuing our summer series, taking a look at Old Testament Bible characters. Thank you for joining us today. Those who are joining the live stream, it's great to have you with us. Guests and visitors in town, it's wonderful to have you here today. So far, we've looked at Abraham as an example of faith, Isaac and the struggle between fear and faithfulness, Jacob and his battle for blessing. Then last week, we studied the wisdom of Joseph. Today, we come to the much written about Moses. And Moses sets the template for all leaders of Israel to come. Many consider Moses the greatest leader in the Bible next to Jesus himself. Jesus even has several what you may consider Moses-like moments in his life. And Moses is thought to have written the Bible's first five books called the Pentateuch. And Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy all tell his story. Let's begin with prayer. I just invite you to open your hearts to receive from the Lord through his word today. God, we thank you for the life and legacy of Moses, your servant. God, we pray today that you would come and speak to us through your word. God, I ask that you come and move me out of the way and come and speak to us by your spirit now. God, we pray that you would fashion us as your people through the teaching of your word today. May you comfort and challenge us and may our hearts be open to receive from you. God, we ask that you come and speak now. We're hungry to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Through a series of somewhat unfortunate events, including Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery, the people of Egypt end up in captivity in Egypt, or people of Israel end up in captivity in Egypt. Still, the Lord employs the natural resources of Egypt, like its abundance of water and its political and economic climate, to grow Jacob's descendants into a great nation. Nearly 400 years later, Egypt's king begins to see this rather prolific group of foreigners as a threat. And so in effort to cull the Israelites, Pharaoh orders the Hebrew midwives to kill all their baby boys at birth. Similarities between the life stories of Moses and Jesus. At birth, both are threatened by king-ordered child genocide. Exodus 1 verse 17 informs us, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. I love it. Later, when Moses is born, his mother hides him in, in a little while in her home, fearing for his life, and then she floats him down the Nile in a tar and pitch papyrus basket while his sister Miriam watches in the weeds. Exodus chapter 2 says this, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then, rather opportunistically, Moses' sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And so the girl went and got the baby's mother. 
Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So, ironically, the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. While Moses grows up in the high courts of Egypt, he likely receives a royal education and training in leadership. Deep down, he must have wondered, though, who, who am I? Do I really belong here? This is the heart cry of many adopted children. Soon he happens upon the injustice of his own people, and Moses quickly reacts. Reacting, we'll see, is one of his character traits that God works with over time to mold and shape and to refine. Oh, how I can relate. Moses says in Exodus chapter 2, saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people. Looking this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. The next day, he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, what I did must have become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian. Hiding out in Midian, Moses becomes a herdsman. He gets married and he starts a family. Meanwhile, the people of Israel groan under the yoke of slavery. Not forgotten though, God sees them. He hears their cry for help and God is deeply concerned for his people. And God's rescue plan involves summoning reluctant Moses as his leader to appeal to his brother, the new Pharaoh, to let two million Jewish slaves go free. From a burning bush, God comes calling. And Moses makes repeated attempts to jam out of it. I can't do it. I'm not a good public speaker. They won't listen to me. Send someone else. Ever heard excuses like that before? Exodus chapter 3 says this, and God said to Moses, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Moses returns to Egypt and he goes before Pharaoh to plead the case of his people. Let my people go. He appeals over and over and over again. Nevertheless, God hardens, it says, Pharaoh's heart. This won't come easy. Seemingly offended by Moses' repeated requests, Pharaoh makes working conditions even nastier for the Jewish slaves. This further complicates things by turning the Israelite leaders against Moses. God then multiplies his wonders in Egypt. Blood, frogs, gnats, flies, livestock, boils, hail. We've had a few of these in Lynn Valley lately. Locusts, darkness, firstborn. These are the plagues that descend upon Egypt at God's sending. Still, Pharaoh refuses to let God's people go. In a terrifying final scene in Egypt, 
to save them through Moses and Aaron, God instructs his people to sacrifice a Passover lamb and to mark their doorposts with its blood. It's a foreshadowing of a future event when God the Son, Jesus, will shed his blood to save the world. Exodus 12 describes the scene. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go worship the Lord as you have requested. Finally, after 430 years of captivity in Egypt, God set his people free. But soon, Pharaoh changes his mind and comes after them. And to escape, says Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And all that night, the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided. And the Israelites went through the sea on dry land with water on the right and on the left. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. And they all lived happily ever after. (laughs) Right? We can go home now? No. Once they cross the Red Sea and Pharaoh and his army are vanquished, Moses becomes the leader of a 40-year-long camping trip for two million not-so-happy campers. I have led many campouts in my day, but this is a tough gig. God must teach his people some valuable lessons. First, God wants to deprogram them from four centuries of immersion in Egyptian culture and religion. It could be said that God takes his people out of Egypt so that he can take Egypt out of his people. The Israelites must learn how to live as God's people. God instructs them through the giving of the law and through his own self-revelation. From Sinai, there's a presentation or two of the Ten Commandments, a sacrificial system with offerings and worship, a covenant, priests, an ark, and a tabernacle to house the glory of God amongst his people, all to highlight for Israel a new way of living post-slavery with their Lord. There's a golden calf, an invasion of venomous snakes, multiple attempts at mutiny, intense battles with other nations, bogus reports from spies about the promised land, and even a donkey that gives his owner a talking to. It's great stuff. You should read it at home this afternoon. This whole thing's a roller coaster ride of people captivated by the incredible miracles of God in one moment and rebelling hard against God the next, just like typical church life. Most of these 40 years, they're literally circling the wilderness with the promised land there in plain sight, tantalizing them. But in God's opinion, they're not yet ready to enter. And the people grumble against Moses, get us out of here, take us back. We were better off as slaves in Egypt. Impressing another vital lesson on his people, God says this, trust me to protect you and to provide for you. 
they'll need to trust God to fight their battles and to provide manna to eat in the wilderness. Consider also the necessity of water for two million people. For the most part, in Egypt, water was in abundance. The people barely had to worry about it. In the promised land, however, this would not be the case. Once there, Israel would need to depend on God to provide even their most basic necessity, water. And this dependence would be an ongoing struggle for all of them, starting with Moses himself. Numbers 20 tells one of these stories. Moses and Aaron went from the assembly to the entrance to the tent of meeting and fell face down and the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord said to Moses, take the staff and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together. Speak to that rock before their eyes and it will pour out its water. You will bring water out of the rock for the community so they and their livestock can drink. So Moses took the staff from the Lord's presence just as he commanded him. He and Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock, and Moses said to them, Listen, listen, you rebels, must we bring you water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm and struck the rock twice with his staff. Water gushed out, and the community and their livestock drank. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not trust me enough, To honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. Come on, what's happening here? Isn't God being a little too sticky? Any good herdsman in the ancient world knew that to strike a porous rock in this region would bring a gush of fresh water. And these people were desperately thirsty, so why not? Why not? Because that's not what God told Moses to do. The Lord specifically told Moses not to hit the rock, but to speak to that rock. Moses' rebellion is that he chose conventional wisdom over God's specific command. Perhaps Moses is tired of the abuse he's taking from the people. Can you feel his frustration mounting in the text? And in an effort to totally redeem himself, he ignores God's instruction and he simply does it his way, hoping to take credit for himself and maybe win over the people. As a consequence of his rash behavior, Moses is banned from entering the promised land. Isn't God being too harsh here? Reality is, doing God's work our way never gets the job done properly. And claiming wins for ourselves rather than giving God the glory never satisfies. It seems there's a higher accountability for God's leaders, a lot at stake. In a way, through the conduct of Christian leaders, the reputation of God is on the line. While he's now an old man and he's nearing the end of 40 years wandering in the wilderness and Moses, along with the Lord, climb Mount Nebo, 4,000 feet above the Dead Sea, and they gaze at the beauty of the Promised Land. Deuteronomy 34, verse 4, picks up the story. Then the Lord said to Moses, This is the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when I said, I will give it to your descendants. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you will not cross over into it. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in Moab, as the Lord had said. Then a stirring eulogy to Moses, 
Verse 10, since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all those signs and wonders the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. It would be a thousand years till the appearance of God the Son, Jesus, one even greater than Moses, to lead the people and indeed to lead all humanity. Well, that was a whirlwind, and as you can imagine, it's time now to land the plane on a few application points. These days, when we think about leadership, it's easy to focus on all the bad leaders out there, the ones who've hurt us or disappointed us. The calling to leadership is daunting. The mantle cumbersome to carry. That's why many shy away from entering the arena. So when it comes to leadership, what's to learn from the example in the life of Moses? I'd like to offer three application points today. The first is this. It has to do with responding well, not simply reacting. What's clear throughout his life is that Moses cannot walk away. When he sees a problem, he has to jump in and react. Impetuous by nature, I have learned, or I am learning, that's more accurate, that my snap reactions escalate problems rather than fix them. Exodus 17 tells one of my favorite Bible stories, and it includes Moses. Early on in the wilderness, the Israelites happen upon a fierce poaching raider tribe known to kill for pleasure and profit. And Moses employs a very unorthodox battle plan. Instead of everybody on the ground fighting the Amalekites, it says Moses and Aaron and Hur went to the top of the hill. As Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But when he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, he took a stone and he put it under and he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur held his hands up, one on one side and one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. And they win the battle. Or more accurately, God wins the battle as they looked to him to fight their battle for them. Here in this story, by his conduct, Moses allows God his rightful place as the main character of the story. Not simply reacting, but responding well is a learned exercise. It's a leadership savvy that's refined by God in the fire of challenging situations should we choose to accept the Lord's shaping of us. Patiently and wisely responding to difficult situations and responding to difficult people flows out of seeing the big picture, enlisting the help of others, and the inner conviction that our battles truly belong to the Lord. Rather than simply reacting to things, may the Lord grant us as leaders the ability to with his help respond well. Second application point I'd like to make today is this, about working through the sting of God's discipline. There is certainly humility, a certain kind of humility I believe God longs to grow in his people, especially his beloved leaders. And the process of God doing this certainly can sting. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says, my son, Do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke 
because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. The question is, how will we respond to God's loving discipline? Under the sting of God's rebuke, Moses works through it. He doesn't run away from God or wallow too long in his self-pity. Notice Moses doesn't say, this isn't what I sign up for, God, I'm out of here. Well, maybe he says it, but he never fully acts on it. From my vantage point, I've seen many leaders respond poorly to discipline. In the hurt, I've seen some even fall off the rails further. Much of my life, if I'm honest, I've responded poorly to discipline. I've become defensive or sunk in my disappointment and resentment or I've simply checked out. This is not how God designs it. When we learn to humbly accept the rebuke of God or trusted other people, when we are receptive to feedback, even the hard, constructive words, it opens us up to a growth and maturity and further rounds us into the leaders that God invites us to be. Third and final application point and most important is this. It's about leaders encountering God face to face. Many people step into leadership having massive identity issues. And leadership roles can fill that void, at least temporarily. Nearly all my life, I have found myself in a leadership role. In my 20s and 30s, I wanted to be the man. I didn't listen well. I loved the sound of my own voice. I felt alive in the spotlight. I thought I knew everything. I did it myself. I believed God was lucky to have me on his team. And truth be told, a lot of my leadership practices were rooted in my deep, deep neediness. And Exodus 33.11 says, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Wow, it's remarkable. I want that. I want that. What impact does this have on Moses and his leadership? I suggest that Moses' unique and intimate relationship with the Lord anchors, anchors his sense of identity. His coming face to face with God keeps him afloat amidst all of his life and leadership ups and downs. And I'm grateful to God now for his patience with me and for providing leadership mentors, friends, even the Arrow Leadership Program in the mid-2000s that really took me apart and with God's help put me back together again. Spending time in the presence of the Lord these days, more and more I've come to know who God made me to be, who I truly am. And as I embrace it, I feel that I'm a far better or at least I'll say healthier leader as a result. Here's the point. The Christian story defines our identity. Beyond gender, race, socioeconomic status, age, success, or giftedness, the God of the Christian story clearly defines us as dearly loved children of our Heavenly Father. That's who we are. And we would do well to sit and find our identity here in God's presence. Hebrews 11, 24 to 26 says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his heavenly father's reward. I know there are many leaders here with us today. Parent, coach, business leader, teacher, church leader. Whatever leadership role we find ourselves in, when we come to truly embrace our identity in Christ, we won't need to grasp for it as much from our world or attempt to make a name for ourselves via achievement or success. Face to face with our Heavenly Father, we can rest in the identity that God has given us and that no leadership failure can ever disrupt and for which no leadership success can ever compensate face to face with our Heavenly Father as dearly loved children of God. Amen.